Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Well, this evening, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Greg Thompson. He is the Director of Research and Strategy at Claiborne Reborn, a historic civil rights site in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also a Senior Advisor for the TomTom Founders Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia. Before joining Claiborne and TomTom, Greg served as the CEO of Thriving Cities Group, a civic design firm based in Charlottesville, and as the Executive Director of New City Commons a consulting team that supports faith-based communities in the work of serving their cities. Greg is also active in national conversations surrounding race and equity in America and holds a PhD from the University of Virginia where he wrote his dissertation on Martin Luther King Jr. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Greg Thompson. Hey everybody. So this is Innovation Week. Uh, and I want to just begin by acknowledging how amazing that is and how cool it is that cities all over the United States are hosting innovation weeks, innovation festivals, innovation gatherings, where men and women who are in their cities are seeking to take responsibility for the well-being of their cities through economic innovation, innovation of all kinds. It's an extraordinary thing, uh, and it's a privilege for me to be here in, at this one. I, I also want to comment on how weird it is there are things called innovation weeks. Um, and I don't want us to forget that either because uh, while innovation, this, this drive to do something new is a feature of our age, it really was not always the case. Um, because see, there are ages when innovation, the idea of innovation was, is sort of the, the provenance of scientists or technological elites. Um, but most people simply inhabit the structures they receive. They're not thinking, thinking about innovating. So for example, Neither my grandparents nor my parents ever went to an innovation conference, right? Like they never would have, it would not have occurred to them to do that. But all of us uh, here, even if you're not um, folks who would describe yourself as innovators, it feels kind of normal, sort of interesting. We're gonna go to an innovation week and we're gonna go to an innovation event. Why are we here? Like why do these things happen? Why am I a senior advisor for the one in Charlottesville? Why am I here visiting the one in Chattanooga? Why am I helping to start one in Memphis? Um, because we know that something ha- is happening, something weird is happening in the world. We can intuit that we live in one of those moments in history when, when something new is happening around us, um, to us, and even through us. We, we know this, um, and you're not wrong about this. Something is, in fact, happening. But what is it? Well, a lot of things are, are happening, and I want you to hear this. Okay, the globalization of markets, that's a big deal. The pluralization of communities, uh, the acceleration of technologies, all of these things are happening. You know about this. And they're conspiring to create this new world in which the, the old market forms, um, the, the customer services, the technological tools for navigating these experiences of day-to-day life, they're no longer adequate. We know this. Like, we actually have to rebuild the way that our economy and the way our structures work. They don't work anymore. And so has been born in this incredible moment in our own time, and I think this is completely insane. There's this new age of innovation, 
and you all are familiar with it, and it, it feels normal to you in a way that it probably did not feel normal to you 10 years ago. I don't know how many of you were like scoping out innovation festivals even a decade ago, but like here we are. But look, while the existence of innovation, um, this wonderful tumultuous churn that's happening all over the global economy, um, it, the existence of it is really beyond any sort of serious question. Really, really important questions about innovation still remain. And among those, I think that the most important question, the question that we have yet to really collectively answer in a way that actually shapes the way we imagine business, the way that we invest in business, um, is innovation to what end? Innovation to what end? What exactly is it that we, through all of our incredible innovative labors, are trying to achieve? What should we be trying to achieve? Um, what, if anything, is it that animates, that disciplines, that finally evaluates the meaning of the innovation that we have? I think that's a really hard question. And I don't think that there are any clear answers to that. And that's another feature of our age. We're all breathless about innovation. But we're a little inarticulate about the end of innovation. Like why we're doing this. Now, in my own personal experience, as somebody who has been around the innovation space some, and who lives and works and goes to places where I meet innovators, which I, I love, I basically, when I ask people, why are we doing this innovation, I think there are two answers. I see if these uh, sort of resonate with you. The first is that the end of innovation is the advancement of knowledge. Like we want to experiment, we want to grow the ideas that we have. That is to say that, that the energy and the discipline, the evaluation of, of, of innovation, it's really about the ideas. It's really about taking an idea, to use a business language, from idea, from concept to scale about growing this knowledge. And so you can see if you're in, especially in tech innovation or if you're in innovation in the sciences or even in um, like say uh, market innovation where people are trying to open up new markets. It's, a, it's about the, the ideas. And, and so the idea that is that the thrill, the end of innovation is basically this thrill of thinking of something cool and then making it happen. And a lot of you feel like this. You know how amazing it is to think of something cool and then see it grow in the world. Now, the other, the other idea that I hear, okay, this is why we're doing this. It's not just about ideas. It's about the market. What we want to do is we don't just have, like, uh, intellectual innovations. We want to have market success. Uh, that is to say, we want to attain um, the embrace and valuation of the market. So the idea is that you find and create an opening in the market. Then you own that market space, and then you continue to own it or you sell it. And that is part of the discourse of innovation everywhere. And so if you go to innovation conferences, people say, well, we're always at the point um, where, we use, where we can exit. We know what that means. We, bu we built something cool, and now we're ready to exit, and that is success in the innovation world uh, all over the place. And you see this everywhere. I know that you see it. Now, I want to say that as somebody who is interested in innovation, I think both of those are really important. We have to have ideas that we can take from concept to scale, and we have to have markets. We have to have places where there are these market inefficiencies that we can get inside and disrupt. Like, you can't have innovation without those things. But I, I also find them both kind of unsatisfactory. I find them unsatisfactory. Um, neither seems sufficient to really answer the question of why we're doing what we're doing. Why in the world are we at an innovation conference right now? Now, in order to discover the end of innovation, uh, I had to turn outside of the innovation discourse itself and go elsewhere, and where I went was to the Christian faith. I don't know that everybody here is a Christian. I am a Christian. Uh, I'm not a very good Christian, but I am a Christian, and um, I've spent the past 25 years of my life trying to order my life 
around the truths of the Christian faith and the practices of the Christian faith. That's been what my life has been. And so the Christian faith for me is really where everything begins. But even so, I have to say that looking to Christianity for the end of innovation was not intuitive. Like, what does the vision of an ancient, largely nomadic, agrarian faith have to say about late modern capitalism and the markets that are opening up? It's not obvious. I mean, we can say, well, it's about shalom. Okay, well, what does that mean? So I had to go and look and see and try to understand this. And as it turns out, the Christian faith says a great deal about innovation. And here's, here's why. First, because Christianity, for all of its antiquity, is obsessed with, with newness. It is obsessed with newness. And, it be, and think about God, God that is revealed in Christianity. He begins with the new word from his mouth, yields a new creation. Um, he creates a new people who then inhabit a new land. And in time, a new presence comes to dwell with us who gives a new hope and meaning to the world that creates this new Israel that is then endowed with a new power by the Spirit and that promises, uh, this God promises through us to, what does he say in Revelation 21, for those of you who know, like I'm making all things new. It was really hard to avoid the language of, of, of newness. It tells a story of a God who is interested in this generative power who's laboring to make things new. And this commitment to newness which, as you know, uh, or in Latin, nova, that's, that's the heart of innovation, right? This idea of this divine making of things new. And this means that from a Christian perspective, to understand the, the end of innovation, what it means to be innovative, we actually have to look at God and what God is doing in the world, this one who makes all things new. But it's not, it's not just about God, it's also about the church. I don't know how much of you have studied, many of you have studied church history and how much, but man, when I started asking questions about innovation with respect to church history, it basically blew my mind. Like, if you think about the ancient church, okay, our brothers and sisters, for those of you who are in the faith here, they came up with new forms of care for the sick, new forms of burying the dead. These are innovations that came out of the Christian community in the Middle Ages. There are new forms of music, new forms of education, of architecture, new structures of governance, new, new actual economic structures are created. New modes of currency are created out of the, out of the Christian church. Or, or move to the Reformation. There are definitely new forms of church life, new forms of music, new forms of the visual arts, uh, new models of city governance that continue to shape the way life in the West exists. Uh, in the Enlightenment, there were new political models that were emerging, new scientific ventures, new medical technologies. Um, and in the modern age, you have Christian, Christian communities giving birth to new forms of agricultural um, production, new market initiatives, uh, new ways of harnessing um, alternative energies. There's new visions of retail, hospitality, medicine, investment. It, it's unbelievable how just in the Christian space, how many people are doing amazing, cool, new things? And as I turned to Christianity, what I saw then was this is not accidental. This is, this is actually essential to who the Christian church is because we have a God who makes things new. We have become a people who make things new, and it just, like, oozes out of us. And if there's something that needs to be made new, well, church folk are just going to figure it out. That's what happens. It's happened all throughout history. And I actually think that that is an incredible thing, that innovation— the sense of making things new is at the heart of the Christian vocation in the world. And I just didn't know that before. I thought, okay, Christian faith, maybe some faith and work stuff, and then there's this like hipster innovation space over here, and I don't know how these things fit together, right? But then I saw, no, they're actually integral because we believe in a God who, who makes things new, and we're a people who labor to that end in spite of ourselves. 
And as I looked at Christian's story, I found myself asking this question, what is it that drives all of this madness? All of this drive to innovation, what is it that animates and disciplines and finally evaluates the Christian urge to make something new? And do you know what it is? Do you know what the end of innovation is? It is love. It is love. In Christianity, the energy of innovation, the drive towards the new is love. And so it was here at the beginning, that is to say in Christianity, that I learned the end of innovation. That it is not fundamentally about the advancement of knowledge, nor about the embrace of the market, but the love of neighbor. Innovation is, as all things Christian are, about love. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us to stand in an innovation week and say, innovation in Chattanooga is about love? In short, and this is important, this is probably the most important thing I'll I'll say, it means at the end of innovation, the yearning that actually animates and, and disciplines and judges our innovative labors is the creation of a world in which our neighbors can thrive. That is the energy of innovation the creation of a world in which our neighbors can thrive. It means an insistence that the knowledge that we advance and the markets that we disrupt or create have as their end the well-being of those around us. That is the end of innovation. And I, believe, I think that actually where I didn't believe that the Christian church had a lot to say in this moment, this sort of renaissance of innovation, I actually think that the Christian church has something extraordinarily important and critical to say and distinctive to say about this, this, um, this birth of innovation, and it is that innovation has always been and must always be about love, and that is the unique contribution that we can make when we talk about innovation in our cities. But what does this require of us? Like, if we're going to be innovation folk, people who are innovators, um, what does it mean for us to carry out the innovations of love? I want to I say four things, okay? They're brief, I promise. One person just like that going to have a stroke when I said four things. So I'm going to say four. <laughs> Let's pull it in. The first is that we're going to have to retrain ourselves. We're going to have to retrain ourselves. Some of us are, are driven by this exciting energy of innovation, and I think that's, that's important. Um, but we're going to have to retrain ourselves to see that innovation is about love. Now, if you're here and you've been in the innovation space, you can think, gosh, this notion that innovation is about love, it sounds a little bit naive. It sounds a little bit idealist. And I understand this, but I also want you to understand that that perspective is mistaken. And it's not only mistaken, it's actually fairly conventional. To say that innovation can't be about love is like an old way of thinking. Um, in other words, it's anti-innovation because lo- love is the innovation. And, uh, and it's not only conventional to say, well, love can't really be uh, influencing our innovations. It's harmful because, and this is, this is what happens, I see it everywhere and so do you, it allows the enormous amount of intellectual, financial, relational, and technological capital at our disposal to be distributed without ever having to be encumbered by the needs of our neighbors. If we do not understand that innovation is fundamentally about love of neighbor, we will do what we in fact do, which is to distribute the enormous amount of intellectual, financial, relational, and technological capital in a way that is never encumbered by the needs of our neighbors, and no one will think that we are wrong because we are advancing ideas and achieving market success, but we are not affecting love. And so I think we have to refocus, retrain ourselves on the work of love's innovation. So what would that mean? If you're an innovator, let me speak to you first, and I'm gonna talk to investors. It means that what you are thinking about, it means that your innovations are not fundamentally about your ideas, but about your neighbor's needs. 
is to say, not like, what cool idea do I have that I want to take to scale? It is, what need does my neighbor have that I need to figure out how to solve? That is a very different way of thinking about innovation. And I think as innovators, we need to encourage one another and train one another to think first in terms of the needs that we are meeting in the world, not just the market opportunities that we're exploiting in the world. Now, and it means also that you're, if you're an investor, you need to begin to give innovators the opportunity to work in a way that is not just about short-term yield, but about long-term civic impact. You need to develop a more patient way of investing your capital so that you can give innovators the space and the time to see love come to fruition. Because a lot of innovation is squashed not by innovators who don't care, but by investors who don't see. And so if you're in this space and you're an investor, part of the work is to say, we are gonna invest in the works of love and we're gonna be deliberate about that. So that's the first thing, we have to, we have to retrain ourselves. Secondly, we have to re-engage our neighbors. We have to re-engage our neighbors. Having to turn from ourselves and say, okay, gosh, I wanna let go of the merely provincial notion that innovation is about my genius or about a market opportunity. We have to now turn to our neighbors and begin to ask what they need. And this is an inescapably neighborly and civic and urban question. And this is deeply important, okay? Because I think I see a lot of people, and I myself have been one of those people, who really care about innovation, who really want to see things that can impact their neighbors. But if I were to say, what does Chattanooga need? Or what does Charlottesville need? Or what does Memphis need? We don't really know. We can have anecdotes, but we don't know how to talk about that. And I think that this is, this is really important that um, we have to really understand collectively the, the deep needs of the community, both now and in the age to come, in the, in the years to come, and to begin to devote our innovations towards that. Does this make sense? So innovate out of a deep, not, not an intuition of what you think is cool or what I think is interesting, but out of what is actually needed and let other people tell us that. Let our neighbors tell us what they need. Let the city corroborate that this is in fact the need. Um, because I, I have to say that um, we, mean to, we need to re-engage our cities and devote ourselves to understanding how they work, what our cities face, what assets it has, what deficits it has, and what can be done. And so this, this returning to our neighbors, I think, in, in a, and I don't mean just in terms of sentiment, but in terms of like real knowledge. And this was, a, uh, this was something I had to learn. I was a pastor for, um, for 15 years. And I don't think it was probably until like year 12 that I ever realized that I needed to ask leaders in my city what they needed. I just thought I knew what they needed because I like had the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, shalom thing. That's like, check that box, man. That about covers it. But I had to say, no, specifically, what do you need? Oh, oh, you need uh, an incubator for minority women to have businesses. Oh, you need a different form of public transit. Oh, you need these classes to be offered at a different time. I just didn't know. And so I want to urge that if you're thinking about this innovation, let it be always in dialogue with the needs of the neighbor. So retraining ourselves, returning to our neighbor. Here's the third thing, um, and this is a part of what we're doing here, and this is reprioritizing formation. Reprioritizing formation, meaning the formation of innovators. See, city renewal is not simply a technical act, it is a moral act. The renewal of cities and the renewal of communities is not simply a technical act that requires certain technical skills, it is a moral act that requires certain kinds of people. And this means that healthy cities require strong networks 
of well-formed leaders in innovation who are committed to the well-being of their neighbors. And I know that this is part of what's happening with the Faith and Work Initiative. It's part of what's happening with Theology on Tap. It's this idea that we need to create an entire network, an overlapping dense network of men and women working in multiple sectors who are formed in virtue. And I've spent a lot of time around business schools. I've spent a lot of time around incubators, around business accelerators. And I can say that it is very few, there are very few of them that prioritize the virtue and the, in, the, the integrity of the leader. It's about finding the genius who can discern the market need and then go develop a sort of system for, for disrupting it. And part of what has to make us different in the Christian church is we have to reprioritize the formation of virtuous men and women who are moving into this innovation space. And I think that's an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important thing to do. And I want to say this personally. I was at a point, uh, there was a point in my life when I realized my gifts are outstripping my virtue. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And we have lots of people that are like that. So please, as we're thinking about creating an innovation district and integration communities, we have to think about those uh, through the reprioritization of, of formation. Um, and so that means that we need to begin to train men and women to think about, uh, to give them the, the kind of civic imagination and the intellectual clarity, the moral disposition, the practical skills um, that are going to be required for building thriving cities. So I want to urge the reprioritization of formation. And here's the last thing. I think finally we need to redefine innovation. The Christian church needs to redefine innovation in this contemporary age that we need to change the meaning and the expectations of what we mean when we say innovation. I've already said this. We live in this unparalleled moment of global innovation. It's nascent. It's a little bit like the Wild West, right? It's like kind of fun to be in the innovation space. It's exciting, and you want to be a chief strategist or an innovator of some kind. It's like super cool. But we don't know what we mean yet. And what that means to me is that we have an opportunity to shape the identity of a market, to shape the identity of a discipline, the Christian church has done this before. We can do this now. And we have to actually change the larger cultural narrative and say, no, no, sorry, that's not innovation. That's just taking an idea from concept to scale. Or that's, that's not actually innovation. That's, that's just disrupting a market. They, lots of people do that. Innovation means the cultivation and instantiation of love in the institutions of a city. We want to see love take flesh in the streets of our world. Now, how do we do this? How can we actually change the way people think about about innovation. And before I answer that question, we actually can, industries can be transformed. So for example, 15 years ago, if you're in New York City and you wanted to ride somewhere, what did you do? You walked out on the street and you did this, right? If you want to ride in New York City, what do you do now? You do this. Uber totally changed <laughs> the way we thought of an entire industry. It just redefined it. And I actually think that the innovation space is new enough in its broad and popular notion that it can be changed. There's still room to give it shape. And I want to urge you to do that. First, by incentivizing it. If you are an investor here, if you are a person who has the means to invest, you need to incentivize ventures that are ordered towards love of neighbor. You need to insist on that. You need to incentivize it and give people the opportunity to build this because there are lots of places, lots of investors are not doing that. How are people gonna risk love if they can't have um, capital investments that actually allow them to do so? 
So we have to create a philanthropic or an investment or a social impact investment or a venture or, or, or um, an equity, private equity community that says we're going to actually prioritize love of neighbor in these investments and we're going to be very disciplined about that. We're going to know what we mean. Second, not just incentivizing it, we also need to do it. Some of us are, have the capacity for innovation right now and it would be worth you saying, what I'm going to do in this next venture I have, and I'm going to try to identify a need in the city, I'm going to try to figure out a way that I can both take an idea from concept to scale and disrupt a market, that I can make this thing work, and I want to demonstrate this as a case study that love-based innovation works. We have to just do it. And so incentivizing it, doing it. Third, and this is important, if you're here and you're not an investor or uh, an innovator, but you're a consumer, here's what you should do. You should expect it. You should expect that the men and women who are leading businesses and doing innovation in this community are doing so for the good of their neighbors. That should be a market expectation. And say, yeah, we would love to, we would love to use your goods. We would love to participate in your business. We'd love to buy your service but you have to demonstrate to us that you are caring for people in our city. And I think that is the most, <laughs> maybe the most powerful engine for transforming the, the kind of discipline of innovation is consumers that expect it to be about the well-being of others. That is extraordinarily power, powerful, and I want to urge you to do that. And then the, the last thing I'll say is not just by incentivizing it, doing it, and expecting it, but also by, by broadcasting it. One of the things that I like about the Theology on Tap podcast and things like that is there are amazing things happening in this city. There are amazing things happening in lots of cities. Somebody needs to be telling those stories over and over and over. Business schools need to be writing case studies on those kinds of businesses. We have to shape people's imaginations by telling them, here is a more beautiful way. Here is a more beautiful way. I think that people around the country I work in a lot of different cities, but people around the country are looking to innovators. They're working to this, looking to this innovator class, to people like you. And I actually think that if you self-consciously embrace the calling to re-narrate the meaning of innovation and say, in Chattanooga, innovation is about love of neighbor. It's about the good of, it's about the common good. Then you have the ability not only to change your city, but to actually change other cities that are looking at you. Because lots of people are looking at you. And when I travel around and we're talking about Memphis, Knoxville, Nashville, Chattanooga. People know what you're doing in the city. People know about this, this, this Innovation Week. People know about the Innovation District. They know about the, the very cool things that are happening. And I think this is an opportunity to bear witness to something else. So how do we how do, we do this? I think we have to retrain ourselves. We have to re-engage re our neighbors. We have to reprioritize formation. And we have to kind of re-narrate innovation, broadly speaking. What will happen if we do this in Chattanooga or in Charlottesville or Memphis or whatever? I don't know. The whole point of innovation is that it's new, right? I don't know exactly what it will look like. Um, it's by definition an unknown path, but here's what I think could happen. You could, as a woman, as a man, participating in this innovation, more deeply participate in the innovations of God's love in this world. I actually see this as a participation in the vocation of the second Adam who himself is making things new. It's an extraordinary act of communion to innovate with and through him for the sake of others. So that's like the mystical horizon of innovation, and I think it's super important. But not only that, we've not just moved more deeply into the life of God, we would move more deeply into the lives of our neighbors. And I want to say this before I close. One of the things that concerns me about every innovation district, conference, room, seminar I'm in is who's not in the room. 
we have the opportunity and the temptation to create a very cool, interesting economic ecosystem for ourselves. For ourselves. And that is exactly what will happen. Unless there is a group of people, a group of men and women that say, this is not just about my life with God. It's not just about my ideas. It's not just about me disrupting a market. It is about the neighbor. And it is about me finding the neighbors in this community and enabling their innovations, coming, along, coming alongside them. Because it is 100% certain that the new wave of innovation is going to reinforce the historic structures of the American economy. Unless we are deliberate about disrupting it. And so what we have the opportunity to do is not just dwell more intimately with God, but actually, and I personally, as a civil rights scholar, this, I'm going to say this, I think this actually is the future of the, of, of the economic future of the civil rights movement. I think the civil rights movement has moved from a national movement where there's a National Civil Rights Act and the National Voting Act. It is going to be about local economies becoming inclusive and equitable. That is how this goes forward. Remember Martin Luther King, I'm on a rant right now, but remember when Martin Luther King at the end of his life in 1968, you know what he was doing? He had turned from merely racial activism to fundamentally economic interventions. That is what he believed. The last thing he was doing when he was at the sanitation workers strike in Memphis was working on the poor people's campaign. The future of the American Civil Rights Movement is not fundamentally, in my judgment, political or legislative. It is economic. And so please understand that you have the opportunity not just to dwell more deeply with God, but to actually do some of this stuff that King and other people were not yet able to do. This is about creating these inclusive economies and supporting people who don't look like you that are, that are doing it. And I think this is incredibly important. And when we do this, I think that might be the actual interesting story. Not that we had an idea that we took from concept to scale. Not that we saw a market inefficiency that we intervened in and disrupted and made more productive. But that we actually took up the responsibility, our own little selves and our own little cities, and made this, made this country economically new. I think it's incredibly powerful. And I want to commend, you, commend that work to you and commend you for taking it up. And I think we're going to have some questions. So thank you. All right, we're gonna go ahead and get started with Q&A. All right, this first one is talking about disruption. Disruption can harm some neighbors and entities. This word has a horrible connotation to me on a personal level. Disruption has been planted as a seed for progress, but is also, it can also be seen as an act of violence. I appreciate the love behind all disruption from your perspective. Help me see this word in a more positive light and the acts attributed to it. And that's a great question. Um, thank you for, for that. I when I say disruption, well, in like innovation parlance and all the sort of like cocktail party speak that surrounds innovation, disruption is rel with respect to markets, with respect to market inefficiencies. That's that's what it, and you know this. This is what that's what it means, um, and it's uh, it's seen as uh, almost in an al algorithmic fashion. Like, where is something not working? How do we then build something that's going to fix fix it? Um, and it is directly related to, to um, when I say market inefficiencies, it's not just inefficiency of service, it's also ways to make money, like what are capital flows that we can, we can disrupt and har harness and leverage. Um, I think that I, I love the moral instinct of the question that disruption unhinged from love is in fact a form of, could in fact form be, a, be a form of violence. So I wanna say we wanna, we wanna disrupt things that are broken 
Um, we want to disrupt things that aren't caring for our neighbors as much as they, as they could be, and we want to do something new. Um, I, do, I, I see like the incarnation as this intervention, this profoundly disruptive intervention that's driven towards love. And, and that's, that's part of the reason I think that we have to, the Christian church here needs to re-engage this innovation discourse like very, very seriously because we have this theology that, that, um, that unites intervention with love in the incarnation, and that becomes paradigmatic for what we mean by making things new. I think that's super important. All right, when you say neighbor, do you mean actual geographic neighbor? Today's economy and marketplace is more global and interconnected than it's ever been. For example, as a global software company based in town, it is a global conference software company based in town, first accountable to the place they live. How can they be globally and scalability minded and locally focused at the same time, or do we need to be both? So let's make a distinction between um, what Christians mean by neighbor, which is, you know, uh, which I think has a broad amount of range to it, local neighbors, global neighbors, um, and what's relevant to particular industries. I want to say that um, it's the people that we impact and that are, um, that our business is directed towards, and the sort of, you, you all know stakeholder theory, so it's not just shareholders, it's the various stakeholders. I think stakeholder theory is like a really interesting thing, a way to help us think more comprehensively, that it, our business is not just accountable to the shareholders, if you're a pu- public company, but they're, to the various stakeholders, whether that's people inside, people that invested, people that are along the supply chain, people that are your direct consumers. And I actually think that businesses need a more robust notion of the concentric nature of neighborliness um, and to look at each of these, these concentric circles of, or sh- stakeholders, if you want to call them that. Um, and so I don't, have a, I don't have like a, here's what neighbor means. Uh, I think it means the human beings that, we're, that we are touching uh, and impacting in any any part of of the work that we do. So, what do you mean by your gifts are outstripping your virtue? Can you expand on that a little bit more? Ugh, yes, of course. Uh, unfortunately, I could expand on that. Um, I guess what, what I'm what I mean by that is this was true for me in the church. Uh, I also think that it is true in business schools and public policy schools and. Um, that it is possible to be very good at something or to have technical skills and to be a morally unformed person, um, a disintegrated person, a person who's like really good um, at sort of predictive analytics or a person who's really good at seeing uh, organizational strategy, um, but to, to not be a person that, that is, you know, um, curious of mind and slow of speech, attentive to body, faithful in relationships, um, that is characterized by the daily work of habits to, to form you into goodness. And I, I realize this in the church. I know it's true in the church. It's also true in, in multiple markets that if you're good at stuff, unless you really, really are screwing up, people don't really care what your character is. And that's a terrifying thing. I mean, think about, you know, we could talk about the CEO of Uber. Like, he really had to do some, like, ridiculous stuff on camera before anybody cared, really. And I think that as a pastor, when I was a pastor of a church, I thought, if you're good at communicating and you seem to know stuff and you're, like, good socially, which is not to say that I was all those things, but if you were those things, 
you could get away with a lot of stuff. And that's really scary. And I don't want to be that. And I think that the basic gamble of every public policy school that I know is that if we can just teach public leaders to, with enough quant, give them enough quant skills, then somehow cities are going to magically transform into these like, you know, late stage liberalism utopias. And it's ridiculous. And so I basically had to say, how can I become a virtuous person? Um, and I had to go off on my own and find that, find communities that would ask that of me. And I think that as a community uh, that cares about innovation, we have to ask that. We have to require that of each other because it is very dangerous and personally destructive to be in a place where people will listen to you or they will follow you or they will um, put you on a stage and not know one thing about your moral life. And I thought, well, if nobody else is gonna protect me from that, <laughs> I'm going to have to protect myself from that. And that has um, been the work of my life for 15 years. So it, it's, just the, it's just this inequity of what one can do and what one is. And that eventually comes home. It, it always bears itself out. Um, and I, I don't want that. I don't want that for pastors. Why would I want that for innovators who are shaping the new economy? <laughs> I mean, we live out of a set of moral instincts and we have to cultivate and prioritize the cultivation of those instincts. Yeah, I, th I think this next question really just pulls you further down the trail you're going, and it, and it sounded like, so the question is, how might people with an entrepreneurial and creative or achieving spirit or innovators best cultivate humility? Uh, so, so I think that's one of those virtues that you really wanna help cultivate within innovation leaders. Um, and uh, can you speak specifically to humility? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find innovation to be fairly humbling <laughs> because you fail a lot. Um, and so th there's a sense in which just the work itself, if you're, if you're honest about it, um, you, you iterate and you fail um, a lot. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think we have to be embedded of com in communities of character that are, that are calling us, that are reminding us of what's true. I mean, one of my favorite things about, say, the Benedictine tradition of, Spiritual formation is the daily recitation of the memento moria, remember that you will die. Um, and I, I think that if you inhabit the monasteries and monastery world, one of the things that happened was this bell that rang was a call to set aside something that you may think is really important that you're good at and to go do something else. It's a, it's a, it was a reminder of, I know you're really good at gardening, or I know you're really good at making honey or beer or whatever it is that you're doing, but you have to go pray now or you have to go clean the bathrooms now. And this, for me, the thing that, um, insofar as I am learning humility, it has happened um, through recognizing that the question I have to ask every day when I wake up is not, what do I have to do today, but what am I becoming today? That's the question. Not what do I have to do today, but what am I becoming today? And that question tends toward, leads one towards humility. <laughs> when you have to do these very ordinary tasks, when you have to confess your sins, when you have to see yet again how you don't want to do morning prayer because it's tedious and annoying, and you have to see over and over um, the limits of your, of your love. I, so I, I actually think that there's no like seminar you're gonna go to on humility. You have to submit yourself to a life that humbles you. And that has been my experience, um, submitting to a life in which one is humbled. So I got one more and then we'll just open it up to general questions. Uh, for the three or four people just texted me within the last two minutes. Um, 
And there's people in the back adding to my list, and so now I've lost where I am on this list. Uh, so what should effective and meaningful leadership look like in a time of ultra-low trust in traditional leaders and institutions? So it's, and I think this is more of a general question about our work in cities um, to, to create places of where our neighbors can flourish. I am extraordinarily disheartened by the, by the normalcy of distrust uh, uh, and the utter breakdown of coherence and trust between civic institutions and citizens, between public and private institutions. Uh, and I don't know, I'm thinking a lot about this myself, how do you, how do you reverse that? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not inviting any sort of commentary on anybody's political disposition here. Um, but it is weird that we live in a moment when, when people talk about national politics, about the most positive thing that people can say is, well, it's going to be interesting. You know, I mean, that's weird. That, there's that much distrust, and it's now just like a normal aspect of citizenship. And I, I personally think that um, I have underestimated the degree to which... Um, Trust needs to be rebuilt. Uh, the trust needs to be rebuilt in white ma males. Um, and the work that I have to do and should have to do, uh, frankly, to build, to build relationships of trust. And I, I think, I, I can't remember exactly what the, the phrasing of the question was, but um, I think one of the reasons that I stepped out of um, pastoral ministry at the level that I was at, you know, was I needed to do more local work outside of the walls of the church to repair social trust and to have the opportunity to be with people that were very, very different because the deficit of trust gets people killed. Um, and it's, it's a deeply, deeply tragic thing. So I, I think that there needs to be communities of leaders who see themselves like their work is to re-engender trust in, this, in the body politic. Um, not trust as a, simply a means to an end. I'm gonna be trustworthy so that you'll vote for me. No, no, the trust is a good that needs to be rebuilt. And the absence of that trust is profoundly harmful. It gets people shot. Um, it gets people uh, passed over for jobs. And I think part of the civic work is, is learning to cultivate trust. There, let me just parenthetically, there's a man named Mike Bontrager. Some of you may know him. He lives in P Pennsylvania. He runs a financial he runs a, a financial services firm that specializes in complex financial instruments um, called Chatham Financial. And that company's mission has one mission: to re-engender trust in financial markets. And he's massively successful at what he does because derivatives are really complicated things, and they can uh, bring a lot of harm to people. But he saw. My career needs to be about re-engendering trust in financial markets because when people lose trust in these transactions, the economy falls apart and major damage is done to the poor and, and to all of us. So, and so I think Mike is a real model for me of somebody who's devoted his career to re-engendering trust. That's great. Um, any questions from the audience? Again, if you've texted a question in the last three or four minutes, I haven't gotten to it, so you can ask it now if you'd wish. You spoke and let me know if I misunderstood. Probably. Uh, uh, probably, I did. Uh, of the incarnation as God's act of innovation mixed with love and uh, as sort of a rule for, uh, for evaluating incarnation, or sorry, in innovation. 
too, they sound too much alike. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering whether that sufficient, whether that morally disambiguates innovation in the way you say. Uh, lots of, plenty of good things were left behind by the incarnation, like for example, Israel's covenant of signs with Yahweh. And I'm wondering if there, if in fact, like innovation mixed with love won't also leave behind tragic, sort of tragic remains and how we should evaluate those. Another softball. Uh, I, um, so I'll say two things about it. First, I think what I, what I actually said was not innovation. I, I was describing the incarnation as an intervention that was motivated by agopic love. I wasn't, it's not paradigmatic for all innovation in that way. And it was specifically responding to the language of disruption. Is there a nonviolent form of disruption? I would say yes, in the sense of, of divine intervention. Um, but taking your point, um, insofar as I get it, um, I don't have any illusions that there will be, and, and circle back if I'm not getting this right, I don't have any illusions that um, we can ever finally escape uh, what could feel like tragic entailments of our labor. <laughs> um, but nor do I feel paralyzed by that. I take that as a normative, as a normative fact in Christian ethics um, on the east, east of Eden. Is so I, I, I think of it in that way. I don't know if I'm getting at what you were saying, but it's not that the, the incarnation is about a, an agopic intervention, not paradigmatic for all innovation. Um, a, B, uh, I think that there will be many things left behind, um, many things that we've failed to do but I don't know if I'm answering your question. Uh, I'll give it one more try and then I'll leave this alone. But uh, the reason I ask is there, the, the market for whatever reason rewards particular skill sets now more than others. And it's not necessarily obvious that the skill sets of records, rewards out, with outsized rewards are better. For example, STEM type rewards. Um, and all the data shows that people who have those skill sets are being rewarded with outsized rewards. That, that is a relatively benign development in the fact that nobody said, hey, let's value, for example, people who can write code more than people who can write sonnets. But that is what the market does. What do you say to the person whose skill set is with sonnets? And what are our obligations as a society towards people who can do that? Does that make better sense? Uh, I, I think so. Um, could I rephrase it and see if, see if I'm getting it? Um, what I hear you saying. Um, uh, uh, we can bring out a couch. Uh, um, yeah. Um, are, are you saying that there are people that are going to be, be left behind by uh, even, in a, um, even a, a market that's, even when it's disrupted by love, those disruptions can leave certain skill sets behind? Is that, is that what you're asking me? Um, uh, I don't know exactly the answer to that question. Um, I think that I, I, I'm always looking in two directions. Like, what is love, the basic question for me is what does love require? And sometimes it requires me to press forward and to, to do these interventions for the sake of the neighbor. And sometimes it requires me to pull back and wait until we can figure out how to either retrain people who are gonna be left out of this economy or to figure out how to reshape a market so that they can find their way. I, I don't have any sort of ready-made formula for that. I'm assuming that there's always going to be both harvesting and gleaning that is happening all the time. There are things that are, the kind of main fruit that we're seeing produced at a given moment, but man, there's a lot of other stuff that we have to carry. Um, but I, I don't know exactly how to do that. This is why uh, 
virtue is required because you've asked a question that indicates that you have a moral eye for those who are not going to be included. And I'm saying, may your tribe increase. Just thinking about innovation and maybe what I, maybe what I do every day in healthcare, for example, um, seeing those that are the most hopeless um, out there. How can we be on markets, innovate as a community to reach those that are maybe the most vulnerable among us? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it does reach beyond the next level of markets up here into those most hopeless down here. Yeah, let me first commend you on your beard. Uh, um, <laughs> I feel like virtue requires me to honor you publicly uh, for, <laughs> for that beard. Um, uh, so I think a, use, a useful thing that, that um, maybe a useful tool for me, and this, I don't know if this will be um, useful for you all, but on the one hand, there are, um, there's inhabiting markets that exist more virtuously, right? Like we're there, this is the way that healthcare providing is happening. This is the way the insurance market is going. This is the way used car sales is happening. This is the way digital education is working. And we're gonna inhabit that space and make refinements based on a commitment to the well-being of neighbor, um, and that's, that's a commitment. But then uh, other times it's not just about inhabiting markets, it's about making markets that don't exist. It's about saying, like, actually, there's a whole group of people over here, and we're going to create a business that actually uh, does this service for them, and we're going to need to figure out a way to make that work. It may be meaning, like, it, it sometimes it, it actually does mean finding venture investors who are willing to think about those kind of things or becoming venture investors. Like there's a guy named Ross Baird who runs Village Capital. Some of you here know Ross. Um, or Chris Knapp in Houston who runs Collaboration Capital. Uh, a lot of these are people who are thinking about helping people who care about the things that you just said, create new sustainable business models in either in markets or with services that are conventionally overlooked that are driven by love. So I think that Sometimes we just have to create alternative markets. And that's, and then all of a sudden you realize over time those can become more integrated at the more, say, profitable or interesting or creative or morally compelling they become, they become more integrated in traditional things. So I actually think that parallel market creation is a, is a real, is a real uh, calling. And so I don't feel myself constrained by just the terms that markets give me. Sometimes I go, well, I don't like that. So what we're going to do is this, and we're going to figure out if there's a way that we can make it work. Now, does that, is that all the distinction between inhabiting markets and creating <laughs> new, new things? So my question is about where does innovation and capitalism, um, where does that intersect with ideas of mercy in the church? So it sounds like we're talking about innovation is on the side of capitalism, right? But how does that Okay, say more about that, Cindy. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you wanted me to do that. That's why I didn't want to say anything else. I didn't really have a question. Um, Tell me what, you, what concerns you. It, I, I think that the way we're talking about innovation is it's for the good of um, making money or um, filling. We have talked about it filling a need. But where might innovation just be for the sake of mercy? And how does that work in a capitalistic, you know, without return? Yeah. Where do we have innovation without return? Yeah, that makes sense. 
I, I wish that I was smarter on this particular point because there are people like Ross Baird that I just mentioned who are thinking about the nature of returns. Um, so let me say just a couple of things that will probably not be satisfactory. Let's just get that on the table. Uh, the first is that global capitalism is the most powerful institution in the history of the world. There's no, nothing even comes close to the determinative power for shaping institutions. And so I, I think that we, um, we're always having to work within a system that has merits and really profound perversities inside of it, this, this kind of global, global economy. And I, so I take it not as a given, and I certainly don't take it as a, as a and, and some people in this room probably do, I just don't, as a neutral good. I just think it bec it's the context in which I'm working when I think about innovation. So I have to think about markets, I have to think about consumers, I have to think about capital, I have to think about operating capital, I have to think about paying people and things like that. Um, that doesn't entail a wholesale commitment to like Adam Smith is awesome, right? Like the, the sort of like capitalism is a neutral good and it fell out of the heaven right after the Westminster Confession. Like that is not how I view the world. Um, it's a series of, it's a, it's a global institution that I take as a given and now I have to work as I do within the context of say American white supremacy or anything else within that system and change it. And, um, and that is, that's a really uh, important thing. So I don't want you to hear this as a basic affirmation or an unbridled affirmation of say, I don't know, Milton Friedman or something, because it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's, so I, that's, that's the first thing. And I, I do think that um, how does mercy and say generosity work out of this? I think that there are very basic things like we could just take lower returns on some things and still be fine and reinvest, and I think a lot of people are doing this. So one, one market that I think some of you are, know about and are interested in is the development of social impact investment. Um, so there's conventional philanthropy, and then there's like conventional investments. But then there's this mediating space now, which is social impact investment, which is roughly 80 to $100 billion of the American economy, that is willing to take lower returns for if there is a demonstrated social good. And that, that market is unfolding. So the Ford Foundation, for example, just put a billion dollars in to the social impact investment, pulled it out of its philanthropy, put it in that space. I think that's a really, really interesting space. Um, it's dangerous, too, because who defines what social impact is? Um, uh, what are the social impact measurements that are going to be used? It's a little bit Wild Westy, and it could reinforce some of the patterns. But I do think that there are ways to... Um, subvert conventional notions of maximizing profit and instead think about using some of the same structures and see if we can redo them in a way that maximizes thriving. Um, but I think we're at the beginning of, of doing that. I, I certainly don't have a sophisticated answer on it. I'm sorry. But I did do your wedding a long time ago, so that's like, we're fine. So give me a pass. All right, Greg. Well, thank you so much for being here. Please give him a round of applause. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. To connect with us and learn about our next live events, like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. You can also support TOT in two ways. First, leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. And second, consider being a patron of Theology on Tap with a small monthly donation on patreon.com. And you can learn more about that at patreon.com backslash Theology on Tap.